from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Roya Mofafeg. Born in Austria to Iranian parents, Roya and her family moved to Iran in 1976, only to escape it five years later due to the persecutions they faced as Baha'is. Roya is a multimedia artist and an author of the book People with No Camel. She's currently working on her photo-based installation piece, Search for Seamorg, a sequel to her novel, The People with No Camel. I started the interview by asking Roya where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was born in Vienna, Austria. At age four and a half, we moved to Tehran. And then at 10 years old, uh, we had to escape Iran due to the persecutions we faced as Baha'is. So we disguised ourselves as Baluch villagers. We flew to the south of Iran, disguised ourselves as villagers, and um, went through to Pakistan. We escaped to Pakistan. From there, we became refugees in Germany, and then we immigrated to the U.S., and then later to Canada. When we were in Austria, the, I mean, I don't really remember myself, but the stories that my parents told me were that we were always seen as foreigners. There's this one comment my father has um, a hard time forgetting, which was once we were on a subway and um, somebody said to me, as I was two years old or something, said, oh, such dark eyes you have, did you forget to wash them this morning? And that really just kind of, stuck with my dad, kind of like a representation of how they were feeling on a daily basis as foreigners in a European country. And then when we moved to Iran, we were obviously Baha'is, and the persecutions and the fight that the Baha'i community faces in Iran, that was obviously something, uh, a struggle that we faced on a daily basis. In addition to uh, what all the Iranians were facing, um, which included the war between Iran and Iraq, but also, obviously, the revolution that took place, which was uh, suddenly a very, very 180-degree uh, shift to the experience of daily life in Iran and then suddenly having to wear uh, hijab, the veil. It was a, a, a real struggle on a <laughs> Again, uh, an additional struggle on a daily basis to just get through the day, plus, you know, having to cover the windows of your house because there were bomb raids and they didn't want the airplanes to see uh, any lights coming from the houses. So there, there was, like, multiple layers of trauma uh, continuously. Well, when we were in Pakistan, the threat was constantly, what if they find out? We've just escaped Iran, which then they would quickly send us back to Iran. And if 
that was to happen, we would face torture and imprisonment. So there was this constant fear of being discovered while we were in Pakistan. When we got to Germany, again, suddenly, although we were familiar with the language and culture, we suddenly fell back into the foreigner label. And especially during that time, they were just getting used to having a lot of Turkish immigrants uh, migrating to uh, to Germany. And there was heavy prejudice, which they faced we faced being darker than them, uh, shades of hair and skin. Once we moved to the U.S., that was 1982, the memory of the Iran hostage situation was pretty fresh in people's minds. And here I was, this Iranian child in a school where I could barely understand what was going on because I didn't speak English. It was always um, having to assimilate to something, but yet at the same time, the man-made divisions did not allow for you to assimilate too much. And by the time we moved to Montreal, um, we had to go to a French school and learn French. And if we were to speak English on school grounds, you'd have to write, I will not speak English on school grounds a hundred times or two hundred times. I remember thinking, how is this possible that every country we go to, basically something doesn't add up in our cultural makeup in some way for us to be feeling peace and equal to the other residents. And that's when I started to also explore the arts and work through some of the traumas of escaping Iran, which I think really was just truly a gift for me, to be able to explore creatively some of the concepts of these man-made divisions and work through the pain, the memories, bottom line, the trauma of that experience. Let's start with Austria. Why were your parents in Austria to begin with? My parents were there to study. My mom had spent 16 years there and my father eight years. They, in fact, met there. Once they had me and my brother, I think it was just they wanted to have family near them. And so that's when they moved to Iran to be around family. You made a statement that it it appeared that after the Iran-Iraq war, then the uh, strictness of the Islamic code came into being, or did it happen during the Iran-Iraq war? It happened before. So the revolution happened, and then with it came chaos. Suddenly, we had to, the girls and women had to cover themselves. Suddenly, we were having to stand in queues for food. Suddenly, you know, middle of the winter, there would be no gas. There would be mm-hmm. rations and things like that. And then there were also basically arresting uh, and imprisoning uh, anyone that had any association with the previous regime, uh, the Shah. The persecutions of the Baha'i escalated during the Islamic Revolution. It had always been the case throughout the history of the Baha'i faith, but uh, it really augmented uh, after the revolution. And so 
you never knew when your home was going to be raided and, you know, your loved ones were going to be taken away or when they were taken away, you didn't really know where they were, whether they were going to come back or many disappeared, many were killed, many were imprisoned, tortured, etc. And then while this was happening, the Iran-Iraq war started and so that brought a whole other series of struggles and fears and trauma. And can you relate to us your personal experiences, either yourself or your family, of the persecution that you experienced? My father was working as a director in a carpet manufacturing company, and his boss called him in one day and said that he had a promotion in mind for him. He said, the only thing is you need to basically recount your face in order to get this promotion. And he, he was given, a, you know, some days to think about it, and his response was, I don't need any time to think about it. The answer is no. Basically, they not only fired him, but they demanded that he return the three years of salary that he had received during the time that he worked there. And I think they gave him something like two two weeks or something to uh, return that money. And that's when we actually started going to hiding. And uh, we would spend a few nights here, a few nights there amongst friends and relatives. Pretty soon after that, we escaped. Can you retell for us the story of your escape from Iran? We didn't really know we were going the moment of escape until the the day before. And we had already been in hiding. So we took the plane to Zahedan, which is the south of Iran, that shares a border with Pakistan. And it's actually in the Baluchistan region. Once we arrived in Zahedan, we disguised ourselves as Baluch villagers and met with the smugglers who were going to take us to hold the border. And um, there was another family we met at the hut of one of the smugglers, as well as two of my father's friends who basically were students in Pakistan, but they would come back to Iran to help smuggle people. Basically, that's how we crossed the border. When we got to uh, one of the cities in Pakistan, we pretty much thought we would just take the plane and, and fly to Germany. But they were looking for Iranians who were escaping, so we couldn't quite go through the original plan. We ended up spending long, uh, more time in Pakistan, actually five weeks. My, my mom had a difficult time staying in Pakistan. My parents decided they were going to just somehow end up in Germany, which they, if the book describes how this all happened, but... We ended up as refugees in Germany, and you know, when we got to the airport, it was like it, they could have just turned their backs and, and not accepted us, which then meant we would be sent back to Iran. Yeah, the, the nerves were very <laughs> charged, and uh, but fortunately, Germany did take us in. So basically, you had to remain in hiding for five weeks in Pakistan? What we were telling people were that we were visiting from Germany. Since we had knowledge of the German language and the culture, etc., 
you know, and we tried to speak German to amongst us here and there just so it would be something that was believable. As far as the motel owner knew we were visiting from Germany, we were told by several people to be very careful not to really talk to too many people and speak to ourselves. So, and that's what we did. We barely met or any new people, just, you know, bare minimum contact. The sequence is that you went to Germany, then you went to the U.S., then you went to Canada, but now you're back in the U.S.? Yes, I returned to the U.S. in 1997. And, of course, I was constantly going back and forth because when we lived in the U.S., we lived with my grandparents. I would always go back and forth to visit them and stay with them for a while. You know, my school and everything, that was all in Montreal. When I came back in 97, I moved at first to Washington Heights and then to Harlem. And that's when I really discovered some of the issues that the U.S. is facing. Uh, in regards to racism, you know, race relations in America, which is why I got involved with the project Wishes in Black and White, which is a photography book on race relations. The project was conceived by Eileen williams Savory. The idea was that we would interview 40 Americans, 20 of African descent and 20 of European descent, and we would ask them one question which was in regards to race relations in America, if you had one wish to share with each other, what would that wish be? And so this book was their uh, response, their portrait, and their name and profession, which Oprah Winfrey actually had based one of her shows, uh, the Martin Luther King show, on this book, and she had done a similar concept where she went and interviewed people on the streets and stuff. So that was one project that really came out of moving back to the U.S. and living in Harlem and seeing truly how far we need to go in regards to these divisions and and the pain and the struggles and the, the injustice that our brothers and sisters are going through. And, you know, when I was in Montreal, too, I was working on a different project, a photography project, which was called Harmony Movement. They sent Canadian photographers, basically, to various parts of the nation to show the diversity of Canada. And so I had the opportunity to visit some of the reservations in Quebec. And there I saw the struggles and the situation of people of the First Nations. It hadn't really hit home until I until I went and saw and then I get very emotional about this subject because I, I cannot understand these divisions we create and you know I always say if if we were to really truly feel the plight that exists with the communities that around us and really not see them as other, but as us, that this is really actually happening to us. Much like, I love this analogy, humanity is like one body, and if one part of the body suffers, your whole being suffers. 
it's exactly like that. If one part of our community is suffering, we as a humanity are suffering. That is really what the subject of my work is all about, whether it's photography, whether it's literature, whether it's installation piece. That is the underlying theme to explore in what ways we can actually arise and truly connect to the, our interdependence and our interconnectedness as a human body. When did you start finding out that your expressive outlet was art and photography? In Montreal, the way it works is you go to high school until grade 11, and then you have uh, what we call CGEP or college, which is a two- to three-year program, which basically is much it's structured like a university in terms of the way credits work and how classes are structured and things like that but it's supposed to really prepare you for university. You can specialize in a certain discipline. So I chose creative arts because I always loved painting. Pretty much I took many painting courses, and I ended up with this one teacher who was extraordinary. I mean, I just, her vision and passion for painting and sculpture was just very um, contagious. By working with her, she some she once said, Roy, have you ever tried photography? And at first I didn't really know what to make of that because here I was trying to be a painter. But I trusted her so much, and I said, well, I'll just take a photography class then. And I did, and I absolutely loved it, and started taking more classes in photography, and slowly I shifted out of painting and by the time I made it to, you know, university, I entered the photography program there. And there I met a teacher who really opened up the world of installation art and installation photography, which is basically to recreate a space into an experience. So it no longer becomes just photograph in a frame and hang it on the wall, but it, it becomes three-dimensional. It becomes about really, truly figuring out how you use space, how a viewer can experience something by just entering a certain location. You know, and that just was so liberating for me because I always like to go outside of the box and just kind of find a different way of doing things. And then I started taking film studies classes, and again, there is an amazing teacher who um, showed me the, the whole world of world cinema and exploring storytelling and uh, how one can do that through moving images, etc. So all of those various disciplines and teachers had a profound influence and impact on me. By the time I moved to New York, I got to know so many different types of artists and mostly performing artists and we started collaborating, and, and you know, I started working with dancer, performing artist, really, um, Kamal Sinclair, who uh, was doing fabulous productions, and you know, we would project images onto dancers. And then here and there, I was approached by different people who had projects that dealt uh, storytelling through photography, and so I started working on some publications like the Harmony Movement 
or I wish it's in black and white. While I was in Harlem, I really felt like I wanted to work with the children on my block. I approached this community center, actually, that was across the street from me, and through them I was able to offer a photography workshop class. After a few weeks, we thought, well, why not have a showcase of this body of work? So there was a gallery called Gallery X, right, like a few doors down from me, and I approached the curator, and I said, could we possibly have a show in between your artist exhibits? And she was totally for it. So we went in there and set up the work of these 5 to 12-year-olds, and we hung the photographs at their eye level. We invited the whole community. They came and had a really nice, beautiful opening exhibit. And then somehow, word got around town, and the curator decided that they wanted to feature the work of the kids at this Times Square Hotel art exhibit. And there, the kids won the second place for the, in the category of photography. So we went down for them to receive their awards, and they had those kids had never left Harlem before. So did you have other projects that you did in uh, Harlem after that? No, that was pretty much it. And then I basically got married soon after that, and we moved to where my husband was living at the time, which was in Hoboken, New Jersey. And so I moved over across the Hudson. You know, we started a family. I was still, you know, shooting photography quite a bit. There was this project which is called Search for Seymour, and Seymour was a phoenix, which appears in the fantasy section of the, my book, The People with No Camel. So The People with No Camel is actually a novel that I wrote about how we escaped from Iran. Part of it is a fantasy story, a parable, that speaks and explores of these concepts of freedom we have, especially in the West. So one of the characters is Timur, which is a phoenix, which appears in the Persian mythology and epic story um, of the Shah Nameh. Then I've taken that character out of the story, and it's truly a sequel to, to the book, this installation piece that I'm working on now. So it's photo-based, and it's a multimedia piece. But the images that go with the piece were images that I started collecting 10 years ago. So I'm working on that at the moment, and I will be presenting some of it at a panel discussion through Beckoning for Change, which is a nonprofit organization that works with artists and organizations who have to do with social change. And then it will hopefully be exhibited in November. Simultaneously, I'm co-writing a screenplay based on this adaptation of The People with No Camel. If folks want to see your artwork, is there a website they can go to see what you've done? For the visual art, the website would be my name, so it's www.royamorafer.com. And for the book, The People with No Camel, thepeoplewithnocamel.com. There you can see the trailer for the book as well as the launch we had in New York City with the dramatic reading and reaction of the people who were there and um, excerpts. I'll post those links as well on my website. Would you like to read an excerpt from People with No Camel? Uh, Sure. 
in this desert of no name and feel the night sky pulling me towards its limitless depths. Sparkling diamonds scattered over black velvet, I see some move and catch my breath. Why have I not seen the sky before? The city lights block our view, they tell me. Do you see me? Do you see where we're heading? Tell me your secret. You know mine. I close my eyes, yet the images of the day appear before me. A day unlike any other. A glimpse of my mother at dawn. It's time, she had whispered. I had been waiting for this time. Time to be another person. To leave those I love. To leave Iran. Time which manifested itself in my grandfather's tears. Smothered in his firm embrace, I could only hear his trembling voice, his failed attempt at words. Through his muddled sounds, I pieced together what he had meant to say, our special name, one last time, the name he had made up and reserved for all his grandchildren. I had prepared myself for my mother's and grandmother's tears, not my grandfather's. In them I understood that we were truly leaving for real this time. We were leaving my grandparents, our friends, the sounds of bombs falling, of missiles firing. We were leaving behind the day I trembled from fear in the middle of the street during a bomb raid, as my father shook me to regain my senses. We were leaving behind goodbyes unsaid, for we had only learned about our moment of the previous afternoon. Above all, we were leaving behind the daily anxieties, wondering when the Pastoran would raid our home or the homes in which we took refuge. Throughout the silent taxi ride to the airport, occasionally interrupted by the gulping tears my mother was determined to hide, my mind lingered back to Papaji, my grandfather, a man of few words, ample logic, and moderate emotion. I was certain that my grandmother, Mamaji, was still crying. Her tears were not unfamiliar. Our arrival at the airport grounds steered my thoughts away from my grandparents to the ascending airplane. I joined my younger brother, Jubin, who was pasting his forehead to the side window. We covered the foggy glass beneath our breasts in footprints made by the size of our fists fingers. Three years had passed since our last flight in 1978, when we had flown back from a month-long visit to Vienna, the birthplace of my brother and me. Between my parents, their years in Vienna lasted 16 years, where they first met a student, married, and juggled their courses, their jobs, which included working at the Iranian embassy, and a baby girl. Shortly after Jubin was born, they decided to move back to Tehran. Like everything else, much had changed since the Islamic Revolution. My mother and I hadn't had to wait in the women line at the airport back in 1978. Now, a black-veiled security guard called for me to approach. Her voice exuded authority. Her eyes were devoid of warmth. She searched my body much like one would search for valuables on a fresh corpse. 
and I, in turn, searched for a sign that would tell me that she had once been a girl like me. At the end, it seemed that neither one of us found what we sought. I waited on the sideline until my mother, too, passed through the hurried and unkind hands of the guard. So, Roya, do you have plans for what you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? I would like to finish the screenplay with adaptation of this book, which is truly exciting. And uh, I'm working with a wonderful screenwriter. We're just having a really, really amazing experience working together. And I would love to see the sequel, uh, The Search for Seymour up and ready and shown. At first I was going to show it in a gallery setting, but I decided to actually take the art to the people rather than the people to the art. So those are the two exciting projects that I have brewing and I'm looking forward to the journey of it. The screenplay, is there plans for it to be a play, a movie, a television production? Yeah, it will be a film. And those plans are in the works? They're in the works. We've just begun the uh, process of writing. Tell me more about the search for Seymour. The search for Seymour, basically, in the fantasy section, there's a woman who wants to save her dying forest. And in the process, she ends up going through her own spiritual journey, uh, which ultimately becomes a search for freedom of spirit. In the search for Seymour, you see this journey take place by uh, this woman interviews various people across this quest that she has, and she stops and asks them what their understanding of freedom of spirit is. What is their search for freedom? I have her asking this question of the trees that she comes across. So this piece is about the trees, and therefore the recorded voices you hear are the representation of what the trees reply. The tree speaks to us. Explore various concepts of freedom and what is freedom of spirit through the responses of some individuals that the woman has come across. This fictional story is integrated into the book People with No Camel? Correct. It appears as a part two, if you will. The first part is really what actually happened during the escape and it's from a memory of a 10-year-old. And part two is described as freedom. And then you suddenly shift completely. And it's quite a big shift. And it takes the reader a lot of preparation to suddenly make that shift. And I'm I'm truly asking for bear with me, come through this journey with me, and let's explore this together, because actually it is the second portion of this book that is a universal experience, whereas the first part is something very specific that happens. The exploration of freedom really happens in a metaphorical format uh, through mythology. What inspired you to write this aspect, the second part? 
there is a promise I made to myself while we were escaping that I would write it all down one day and tell the story because it was just so completely out of any experience that I'd ever had. It was just complete, you know, it was like, how, how is this happening? How is this possible? So I told myself that one day I would write it all down. But when it came to it, it was a very difficult thing to do. So I pushed it back and I just decided to, rather than, than write the story down, to actually uh, explore the emotions of having gone through the journey. Throughout the years, people kept saying, you need to write this down, you need to tell your story. So, And I kept saying, I will, I will, I will. And finally, I thought, you know, I need to write this down while my parents are with me, while they still remember, you know, while it's, you know, I don't want too much time to pass before I, I do this. That's how I made the decision to write the story. Initially, I wanted this to be a screenplay, and I kind of started structuring it that way, and I was like, this is not working. So I thought, well, let's not give it that kind of structure, just do free flow. I just started writing, and as I was writing, this other fantasy story started coming into my mind as well, because it's about freedom. It's also during a time where we, you know, our country was talking about freedom quite a bit. So I was like, okay, what does this mean, this this word we use, I think we, there are different levels of it. There are different meanings to it. So I know just these Persian uh, mythology characters kept coming to mind. Also, I have to say that in Iran, storytelling is very, very infused in a life of a child in terms of whether it's a grandparent that uses it in an analogy of some way or at school, you know, there's you're always learning a point or a lesson through a story. So I think it wasn't a big stretch for me to bring that kind of, that form, that style into writing because I grew up with hearing about various stories, including like the, the stories of the, the tales of Shahzad and Aladdin and Imorak and Deev and all these characters we all grew up with in Iran children and adults even. That's how the fantasy and the memoir ended up in the same book, which many warned me not to do. And they, you know, they're like, bookstores won't know how to shelve this book. Is it fantasy? Is it memoir? And that became a big issue. But I listened to this one author who I actually adore, and she, she said, stick to your intuition, stick to your guns, don't listen, just do it. And I did, and I'm very grateful for that advice because uh, it wouldn't have been an authentic way of telling the story otherwise. The title, The People with No Camel, is basically because, according to the laws of Sharia in Iran, if a Muslim man is murdered, his family is compensated according to the price of 100 camels. And if the same crime is committed to a Muslim woman, her family would be entitled to the price of 50 camels. And if the same crime committed against a Baha'i, no camels would apply. And therefore, this book is called The People with No Camel. And uh, in the book I say, I am of the people with no camel. Do you want to read an excerpt from the second part of the book? The fantasy. Okay. 
The woman sits by the tree whose sour cherries she has just picked. They taste of home. She smiles and has started to climb the tree again to pick more of the red delights when a rush of wind passes through the leaves and with it, jolting, distant cries. She sees a figure in red running through the tree, spreading his greens. A tall, hairless man in loose crimson clothing who stops in his tracks near her tree. He drops to the ground, his cheek against the green grass and stares ahead. You think I don't see you, he says, not moving a muscle. The woman falls to her hands and feet, keeping one hand close to the dagger in her boot. Are you hurt, she asks tentatively. The tall man bursts into laughter that is both lengthy and tearful as he rolls about in the grass. Who would have thought it possible? They harmed Jeannie. Jeannie? The genie is no longer laughing. His eyes glaze over as he looks off into the sky. Why were you running? she asks, drawing the hand away from her boot, searching for my previous master. How did you lose your master? she asks, and takes a step towards him. She freed me from my lamp and disappeared, the genie said, lifelessly, tears falling down his face. Why are you looking for her? Only she can return me to my lamp. But you're free. The genie sobs and laughs. Since my freedom, I've walked the ground, filling my days, turning beggars into kings and back to beggars giving children to the barren and robbing them later from their mothers. I reunite lost lovers and break their bonds with one glance, all randomly chosen on a moment's whim. Why? I'm a genie, he says and chuckles. But why return to your lamp? Because all I want to do here is die and begins to weep. Maybe you can help me, she says, after watching the walnut tree soak up the genie's tears. Riches? No, she says, and whispers, I need to destroy the Hayula of the deep. The genie briefly studies her. Not even I can destroy him, he says. But I know one who can help you. Who? Seymour the phoenix. How can I find her? With her feather, he explains. I can give you the feather, but I'll need something from you. Anything. One of your eyes. My eye, she gasps, her face clouding. You said anything. Roya, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roya Mofafeg, a multimedia artist and an author of the book People with No Camel. She is currently working on her photo-based installation piece, Search for Seamorg, a sequel to her novel The People with No Camel. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
guards his name, guards his name. Like drawn to a flame. His name, God's His name, God's His name, God's His.
In a bombed out room in Belfast A young boy is crying He's alone and he don't understand How the teachings of one book Built on love and understanding Could cause the hurt and killing in his land In an old part of Jerusalem Two children are playing They run in life the way that it should be But one will wear the star And one will wear the crescent They'll grow up and change from friends to enemies But we are one The flowers of one garden were one The leaves of one tree Let the walls come down And stand here together We are one In a Pakistani village A young boy on crutches Takes a fall and lies helplessly there And he holds out his hand But no one will take it They won't touch him Or the clothes that he wears On a side street in Selma a black child is sitting in a squad car protected from the whites Cause they're burning a cross to send her message And you can see the fear in her eyes But we are one The flowers of one garden we're one The leaves of one tree Let the walls come down And stand here together We are one family Ponder in our hearts How we were all created From the same dust Searching we will find That the spirit of the age Has come to find us To find us We are one Flowers of one garden We're one The leaves of one tree Let the walls come down
The world is in a strange kind of sleep Take my hand and we shall weep Yes, we shall weep Breakdown and dissension everywhere I wipe my hands, why should I care? Why should I care? And I wonder how we lost our way The world's condition worsens every day The nations fight for food and land The game of death is played Chose our sides as the spirit died. There's nothing left to say. The world is drowning in a sea of hate. Our greed and pride has sealed our fate. Has sealed our fate. The lesser peace will follow from the war In fear we stand on crimson shores On crimson shores And then the most great peace will come the great peace will come The great peace will come O children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the other. Ponder at all times in your hearts how ye were created. Since we have created you all from one same substance, it is incumbent on you to be even as one soul, to walk with the same feet, eat with the same mouth, and dwell in the same land. That from your inmost being, by your deeds and actions, the signs of oneness and the essence of detachment may be made manifest. Such is my counsel to you, O concourse of light. Heed ye this counsel, that ye may obtain the fruit of holiness from the tree of wondrous glory. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.